Welcome to After Adams Avenue. We're glad that you've chosen to sit in on our conversation, ongoing for more than 30 years in San Diego at our Adams Avenue bookstore, and now to continue via our podcast. I am Brian Lucas, bookstore owner, reader, and the host of After Adams Avenue. Welcome, and thank you for sitting in on the inaugural episode of our After Adams Avenue podcast series, the first of three episodes on the British humorist P.G. Woodhouse, writer in many genres over a span of more than six decades. For me, undertaking this course of action fulfills an obligation placed upon me by our daughter Angie and my sister Lynn, who are the instigators of all that is to follow and whose only condition was that we get off the mark with Woodhouse, requirement to which I most readily accede. For all their time, their encouragement, and their technical and editorial assistance, I heartily thank them. If you have any questions about our undertaking, what we're doing, or what might lie ahead, please visit our website. There you will also find the background with pictures on our Adams Avenue bookstore, which we owned and operated in San Diego for 32 years until 2018. Out of that experience and all the wonderful relationships and reading fostered over that time, this podcast emerges. We welcome any comments or questions that you might have. title of today's P.G. Woodhouse episode, Plum Emerges from a Surging Sea of Ants. I confess, we face a problem already. How do we begin? And here, right out of the blocks, we will follow Plum's lead, as he shares his struggles with the same conundrum. The following is from Right-Ho Jeeves, page one, at the very beginning. Now for Woodhouse here, Bertie Wooster is the narrator of the story. Jeeves, I said, may I speak frankly? Certainly, sir. Now, what I may have to say may wound you. Not at all, sir. Well, then. And now here in the story itself, Bertie catches himself and breaks off and agonizes about how he should proceed. He says, no, no, wait, hold the line a minute. I've gone off the rails. I don't know if you've had the same experience, but the snag I always come up against when I'm telling a story is this dashed difficult problem of where to begin it. It's a thing you don't want to go wrong over because of one false step here and you're sunk. I mean, if you fool about too long at the start, trying to establish atmosphere as they call it and all that sort of rot, you fail to grip and the customers will walk out on you. Get off the mark, on the other hand, like a scalded cat, and your public is at a loss. It simply raises the eyebrows and can't make out what you're talking about. I might have to hark back just a bit. Right-ho, then, let me marshal my facts. And we, along with Bertie, might best do the same. In a review article in the San Francisco Chronicle years back, the claim was asserted The person who has not read Peachy Woodhouse has not lived a full life. Now, one hesitates to make overly sweeping generalizations. It is likely not life 
the universe and everything, to be sure. However, Mr. Douglas Adams himself does give Woodhouse pretty high marks. Quote, It matters not one whit that he writes endless variations on the theme of pignappings, lofty butlers, and ludicrous impostures. He is the greatest musician of the English language, and exploring variations of familiar materials is what musicians do all day. Let's have perhaps just a taste. Woodhouse as a musician of the English language, with much more to follow. Just a short sampling of Woodhouse as a craftsman, the perfect image or simile or metaphor. She looked away. Her attitude seemed to suggest that she'd finished with him and would be obliged if someone would come in and sweep him up. The second one, the drowsy stillness of the afternoon was shattered by what sounded to his strained senses like G.K. Chesterton falling on a sheet of tin. Now here's an image from one of Woodhouse's early, much-loved characters, Stanley Fanshaw Eukridge. Elf Todd, said Eukridge, soaring to an impressive burst of imagery, has about as much chance as a one-armed blind man in a dark room trying to shove a pound of melted butter into a wildcat's left ear with a red-hot needle. End of quote. And here's a great image. It is never difficult to distinguish between a Scotsman with a grievance and a ray of sunshine. And then another simile. He groaned slightly and winced like Prometheus, watching his vulture dropping in for lunch. Then lastly, just a few examples of his effective use of what is known as the transferred epithet. That is where an epithet is transferred from the noun it is meant to describe to another noun in the sentence. Some examples. He pointed an angry finger at me. She looked at him with concerned eyes. I balanced a thoughtful lump of sugar on my teaspoon. I sat in the bath, soaping a meditative foot and singing. Now, in a radio broadcast in 1934, the writer Hilaire Belloc called him the best writer of English now alive, the head of my profession. That remark loosed an avalanche of inquiries. What could Belloc have meant by such an extravagant commendation for a writer of what, after all, are only light comedies? A few years later, in the preface for a collection called Weekend Woodhouse, Issued in 1939 and still in print, Belloc elaborated. Writing is a craft, like any other. Playing the violin, skating, batting at cricket, billiards, wood carving. And mastership in any craft is attainment of the end to which the craft is devoted. The end of writing is the production of a certain image and a certain emotion. And the means toward that end are the use of words in any particular language. And the complete use of that medium is the choosing of the right words and the putting of them into the right order. And it is this which Mr. Woodhouse does better in the English language than anyone else alive. Now, we will occasionally hear from other readers and critics of his work as we travel along. However, our primary focus throughout will be on Woodhouse himself. Mostly, we will simply let him talk to us, to read to us. I will merely attempt to give some structure and direction to our journey 
and for the rest we will listen to him, from his short stories and novels, the point of entry for most of us, plus from some of his essays and many letters, perhaps even a bit of poetry, not nearly as often encountered. And we will hear him explain how he does what he does, comment on his own work, and on that of other writers, living and otherwise. First, then, there is the name itself, that is, his name, Pelham Grenville Woodhouse. Quite an intimidating moniker, indeed. It seems, though, from the editor of Woodhouse in his own words, that, quote, in his formative years, the young Woodhouse had trouble, understandably, pronouncing a mouthful like Pelham. It just tended to come out as plum, and the affectionate diminutive stuck with him for life. There does appear, however, evidence scattered about in his works that though such a burden might have been forgiven, it was not forgotten. Just a couple of examples. First, from his preface to Something Fresh. If you ask me to tell you frankly if I like the names Pelham Grenville, I must confess I do not. I have my dark moods when they seem to me to be about as low as you can get. At the font, I remember protesting vigorously when the clergyman uttered them, but he stuck to his point. Be that as it may, he said, having waited for a lull, I name thee Pelham Grenville. I was named after a godfather and not a thing to show for it but a small silver mug, which I lost in 1897. Further, perhaps indirect evidence that the anguish was indeed deep-seated we find in an episode from the novel Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit with reference to a Mr. L.G. Trotter. Now, in our next episode, we will sidle up a bit more closely to this inimitable pair of characters, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves, his man. But this short intro reveals that indeed for Woodhouse the pain might have lingered over his full name, well past his early encounter with the clergy at the baptismal font. Anyway, back to L.G. and Ma Trotter. Now, Jeeves knew that, quote, Ma Trotter, being socially ambitious, was extremely anxious to see Mr. Trotter knighted, and quite aware that he'd been offered a knighthood and declined. Among other reasons for his hesitation, he, as Jeeves puts it, quote, shrinks, no doubt, from the prospect of being addressed for the remainder of his life as Sir Lemuel. Bertie, his name's not Lemuel. I fear so, sir. Couldn't he use his second name? His second name, sir, is Gengolfus. Golly, Jeeves, there is some raw work pulled at the font from time to time, is there not? There is indeed, sir. Plum's path from the font to the typewriter as a writer certainly took some unexpected turns, but from early on, that was the goal that he had set. As he puts it, reflecting back on his youth, in the earliest years, I always wanted to be a writer. I started turning out the stuff at age five. What I was doing before that, I don't remember. Just loafing, I suppose. As his father worked most of his adult life, as many British nationals at that time, 
in the far-flung reaches of the empire, in his case in Hong Kong, Pelham and his brothers, for most of their childhood, were boarded out to school back in England. It appears that roughly from age 3 to 15, he saw his parents for a total of perhaps six months altogether. Then, between academic terms, they were shunted off to live with varying combinations of aunts and uncles. An interviewer asked him once about the impact of the long-distance parenting, especially since he was always known as a most genial chap. To what do you attribute your good nature? Was it a happy childhood? Woodhouse, I, I certainly had a very happy childhood. My position was the same as Rudyard Kipling's. His parents were in India and boarded him out with a family in England. My parents were in Hong Kong, and I also was boarded out in England. Yet I got on marvelously with the people I was with, mostly aunts and uncles, and I loved them. To what can you attribute a good nature, I wonder? You think we're born with it? I suppose we are. And as Barry Day, editor of the volume, P.G. Woodhouse, in his own words, comments, quote, One incidental advantage of staying with so many different relations was the view it gave Woodhouse of the distinctive upstairs-downstairs world of Victorian family life. Once the boys, that is Plum and his brothers, had been passed from hand to hand, they would frequently accompany the current aunt, many of them were vicars' wives, on her social calls to the local great house, where they were usually consigned to the care of the servants below stairs. In this subterranean kingdom, there was a distinct hierarchy in which the butler was the unquestioned king. When the staff dined, it must have been quite a sight to see the butler offer his arm to the housekeeper before leading in the stately procession in ranking order. All of this the young Woodhouse observed, remembered, and eventually resurrected. Growing up, Plum fully expected to be able to follow his older brothers and go to Oxford University. But after his father retired, unanticipated financial setbacks prevented P.G. from following his dream though there doesn't appear ever to have been any question of his academic credentials. At Dulwich College, he followed a rigorous program of classical studies in literature and the ancient languages, Latin and Greek, with hefty doses of French thrown in as well. As Woodhouse reflected on his earlier education, the average parents chose the classical side, where their students learned Latin and Greek presumably with the vague idea that if all went well, they could go to Oxford or Cambridge. In my day, to the ordinary parent, education meant classics. I went automatically to the classical side, and as it turned out, it was the best form of education I could have had as a writer. And later, of course, he had fun exploiting what remained of his grasp of the French language, taking here an example from Ring for Jeeves. Bertie, Jeeves, what asses these Frenchmen are. Why can't they talk English? Jeeves, they are possibly more to be pitied than censured, my lord. Early upbringing, no doubt, has a lot to do with it. In any event, instead of Oxford and reading classics, it was to work as a clerk in the London office of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, 
Yet, as stated above, Woodhouse had one desire, one plan from the beginning, and that was to be a writer. So even here, while working in the bank, he wrote constantly, and he wrote everything. Verses, articles, essays, short stories, letters to the editor. And, as he says reflecting back, they were awful. And to make matters worse, they were all written in longhand. My trouble, he says, as with all beginning authors, was that I did not know how to write. But he did admit to knowing how to collect many rejection slips. In fact, he says, I could have papered the walls of a good-sized banqueting hall. Worse bilge than mine may have been submitted to the editors of London in 1901 and 1902, but I should think it very unlikely. That nonetheless, as he wrote in a letter years later, in 1957, he asserted, quote, Curiously, even in those early days, in spite of the blizzard of rejection slips, I had the most complete confidence in myself. I knew I was good. Now, today, I'm a mass of diffidence. And I wonder if this is going to be all right. And I envy those tough authors, square-jawed and spitting out of the sides of their mouth, who are perfectly sure every time they start a new book that it will be a masterpiece. But with each book of mine, I have, as I say, always had that feeling that this time I've picked a lemon in the garden of literature. A good thing, really, I suppose. It keeps one on one's toes and makes one write every sentence ten times. When in due course, Charon ferries me across the sticks and everyone is telling everyone else what a rotten writer I was. I hope at least one voice will be heard piping up. But he did take the trouble. And meanwhile, we certainly can say that Woodhouse was truly, by all accounts, a tireless note-taker and rewriter. On the other hand, he didn't seem often to philosophize much about his work, as an author that, quote, had something to say, end of quote. As he put in a later letter, it was not that I had any particular message for humanity. I'm, I'm still plugging away and not the ghost of one so far. So it begins to look as though humanity will remain one message short. In a letter to Bill Townsend, a, a close and lifelong friend that he wrote in 1952, P.G. writes, I sometimes wonder if I really am a writer. And then, when I look back at the 60-odd books on the shelf with my name on them and reflect that over 10 million of them have been sold, it amazes me that I could have done it. And, of course, at this point, he still had more than 20 years of productive writing ahead of him. And we might add that almost all of his works are still almost 50 years after his death in print. Later in another letter, he writes, I don't know anything, and I seem incapable of learning. And I sometimes even feel that I've been fooling the public for 50 years. Writing one book after another, that's my life. I wrote another book, and then I wrote another book, and I just continued to do so on down the years. Now, not on the one hand a total bust, and yet not on the other a wham or a sacco. Ask the first ten people you meet, have you ever heard of P.G. Woodhouse? Nine of them will answer, no, Woodhouse says. The tenth, being a little hard of hearing, will say, down the passage, first door on the right. 
From reading through his letters, particularly those to Bill Townsend, we find what seems to be a combination of just disciplined hard work plus sticking to what he knew and did best. Quote, it's what I always feel about my work. In other words, that I go off the rails unless I stay all the time in a sort of artificial world of my own creation. A real character in one of my books sticks out like a sore thumb. End of quote. Here he seems to give short shrift to where the brilliance of his writing really resides. Yet this artificial world he makes reference to welcomes us to wonderful pleasures of reading that never fade or grow old. He does occasionally evidence a thoughtful and reflective musing on just how he sets about his task morning by morning, what seems to get the creative juices flowing. We find this in Author Author, the letters collection. This is from May 1947. In a New York interview with Doubleday Publishers, the interviewer asked me, among other things, to describe my literary methods, and I did. But as the listeners from coast to coast probably switched off to another channel the moment I appeared on the screen, it seems the kindly thing to do to tell them what they missed. And here, briefly, are the facts. As I've heard many other authors say, I'm at my desk every morning at nine sharp. But then something tells me I could never get away with it. The public is shrewd, and it knows that no author is ever at their desk at 9 a.m. I do get to my desk, however, around 10.30, and everything then depends on whether or not I put my feet up on it or not. If I do, I instantly fall into a reverie or coma, musing on ships and shoes and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, possibly with a sidelong glance at the mystery of the universe. This goes on for some time. Most of my deepest thoughts have come to me when I have my feet on the desk, but I've never been able to fit one of them into any novel I've been writing. Now, if I avoid this snare, I pull my chair up to the typewriter, adjust the dachshund, which is lying on my lap, give a chirping to the boxer, and throw a passing pleasantry to the cat, and I pitch in. Now, this may all seem a bit of a serious turn in our discussion of the master of humorous writing, but only to make the point that he was a tireless worker, an unrelenting craftsman. In another letter, also to Bill Townsend, he writes, I've never written a novel, except perhaps Thank You Jeeves, without doing more than 40,000 words, and then finding they were all wrong, and going back and starting again. And this after filling up 400 pages with notes, mostly delirious, before getting something in the nature, finally, of a coherent scenario. As the editor of Woodhouse, in his own words, Barry Day put it, it surely was not that what he reads on paper in his typewriter always struck him as his best stuff, as P.G. himself puts it. Golly, what rot it sounds like when one writes it down. Come, come, Woodhouse, is this the best you can do in the way of carrying on the great tradition of English literature? Even so, when criticism came his way, he did find ways to keep it at bay, at least to make light of it. In comments about his novel Summer Lightning, he deftly outmaneuvered one of his critics, who had picked up on an attack that Plum had encountered before. Quote, 
A certain critic, for such men I regret to say do exist, made the nasty remark about my last novel that it contained, quote, all the old Wolthouse characters just under different names, end of quote. Well, he has probably by now been eaten by bears, like the children who made mock of the prophet Elisha. But if he still survives, he will not be able to make a similar charge against summer lightning. With my superior intelligence, I've outgeneraled the man this time by putting in all the old Woodhouse characters under the same names. Pretty silly it will make him feel, I rather fancy. He gives us some further hints about his approach to his writing and even glimpses of what methodology he employed when on task. As he wrote to Bill Townsend in 1935, I believe there are two ways of writing novels. One of them is mine, making the thing a sort of musical comedy without the music and ignoring real life altogether. The other is going right down deep into life and not caring a damn. And now just a couple more bits about the Woodhousian approach. The more I write, the more I'm convinced that the only way to write a popular story is to split it up into scenes and have as little stuff in between the scenes as possible. Maybe for Woodhouse, this is a a manner of working that carried over from the 30-some-odd musicals he wrote book for, together with such Broadway legends as Guy Bolton and Jerome Kern, the Gershwins, and Ziegfeld, way back in the 20s. Writing back and forth with Townsend in 1922, he comments, One thing I try to do is to get to the dialogue as soon as possible on the first page of my typescript. Nothing puts the reader off more than a great slab of prose at the start. The absolute cast-iron rule, I'm sure, in writing a story is to introduce all your characters as soon as possible. He had friends, other writers, who sought to pass along their schemes, which had proved their worth to them. One of them reminds me of Victor Borges' gag with vocal or dictated punctuation. In another letter to Townsend in the late 50s, he tells the story of a friend of his, that is Woodhouse's, not Townsend's, who always dictated his books. Woodhouse writes, How can anyone compose a story by word of mouth, face to face with a bored-looking secretary? It is more than I can imagine. Yet Oppie thought nothing of saying, Ready, Miss Spelvin? Take dictation. Quote, not comma, Sir Jasper Murgatroyd, close quotes, said, no better make it hist, Evangeline, comma, quote, I would not marry you if you were the last man on earth, period, close quotes, quote, well, comma, I'm not, comma, so the point does not arise, comma, close quotes, replied Sir Jasper, comma, twirling his mustache cynically, period, And so the long day wore on. End of chapter. With Woodhouse, we are married along by the brilliantly crafted narrative. It all flows as if so effortlessly. And yet behind it is the constant rewriting, recasting, repeating. Perhaps this somehow almost seems to us discordant with our expectation. Was he gifted? As a linguistic artist, yes, clearly so. Yet as he makes reference to a number of times, his excellent education in literature and classics laid the best possible groundwork. And he was a reader for life, 
regained some sense of that in an interview that he did in his later in life for the Paris Review. The interviewer asked him, well, what have you been reading most recently? The Woodhouse, I've been reading the old books. The first time you read a book, you don't read it at all carefully. You just read it for the story. You have to go back and keep rereading. Every couple of years or so, I read Shakespeare straight through. But then I go to the latest by Agatha Christie or Rex Stout. I read every book of theirs. I do like a book with an elaborate plot. But I don't have any definite plan of reading, and I read almost everything. He was one who read voraciously, following the trail after plot, characters, and dialogue everywhere he went. His near lifelong familiarity with Shakespeare finds considerably reflection throughout his work. His novels and stories serve as virtual dictionaries, reference works of allusions to and quotations from the Bard. Just a reminder, all this careful and unrelenting work from a man certainly considered to be shy and never comfortable in social situations, seeking at all costs to avoid unpleasantness and argument. In his stories, though, he does appear not nearly as reluctant to capture some real beauties of argument, that is, in his stories. Just a, a few short lines as, about this as we come to the end. There are girls, few perhaps, but to be found if one searches carefully, who, when their advice is ignored and disaster ensues, do not say, I told you so. Mavis was not of their number. Here's another one. I suppose this was really the moment for embarking upon an impassioned defense of Boko, stressing his admirable qualities. Not being able to think of any, however, I remained silent. And the last one, she's got brains enough for two, which is exactly the quantity the girl who marries you will need. Now, as for P.G. Woodhouse himself, perhaps we can best sum up what we've reviewed by turning to the singer Johnny Mercer, who put it in his 1944 hit song, Accentuate the Positive, though not specifically referring to Woodhouse, in the following manner. Accentuate the Positive, Eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. This description does fit plum to a T. You've got to accentuate the positive Minded to negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread. Here we will bring our first episode to conclusion. We hope that you've enjoyed our introductory session on Woodhouse and his world. In our next time together, we'll pick up from here and focus our attention in two areas. The stories of Bertie Wooster and his gentleman's personal gentleman, Jeeves, and another writer we often meet there with them, Shakespeare, the great bard himself. Thanks for sitting in with us. This is Brian Lucas, your host for After Adams Avenue. Again, if you have any questions or comments, 
please feel free to visit our podcast website. Please join us for our second episode soon to appear. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode or have any questions or comments, please visit our website at afteradamsavenue.com. We would love to hear from you.